Australian Muscle Car Magazine is one of the most respected voices in motoring media. There's been over 140 issues and thousands of stories published in the last 22 years, from the amazing muscle car machines of the past to the present and the stars that steered and built them. AMC has something for everyone. Delve into the heritage of homegrown high performance now at musclecarmag.com.au. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. G'day race fans, welcome to the Castrol Motorsport News Podcast. I'm your host Will Dale and here's what's making headlines this week. Brody Kostecki and Erebus Motorsport are the champions for the 2023 Repco Supercars Championship season. They locked up both titles across the Velo Adelaide 500, beating Shane Van Gisbergen and AAA Race Engineering to the punch. And naturally, we'll unpack more about that and the Adelaide weekend during this episode. Supercars also had its glitzy end-of-season gala awards last night in Adelaide. Chaz Mostert won the Barry Sheen medal, while Brody took out the Pierre Voted Driver's Driver Award. Blanchard Racing Team will break new ground next year as it expands to become a two-car squad. It has recruited Kate Harrington from Tickford Racing, who will become the first woman full-time team manager in the Repco Supercars Championship. Meantime, Ford's Supercars engine program will have a different look to it next year as well. Dick Johnson Racing is expected to take over the outfit currently operating as Herod Performance Engines and serve as the control engine supplier to all the Mustang runners in 2024, and we'll chat more about this later in the episode as well. The Bathurst 12-hour should have its biggest field since pre-COVID in 2024. Event director Shane Rudzis told Supercar's Chic Cooldown Lap podcast that between 35 and 40 cars will be entered for next year's event. That's a step up from this year when 26 arrived at Mount Panorama for the GT Enduro. Meantime, the event has also signed on a new naming rights partner for 2024 with Repco coming on board, so the race will be known as the Repco Bathurst 12 Hour. And new Grove Racing recruit Richie Stanaway will make his race debut for the squad before the start of the 2024 Supercars season. This year's Bathurst winner will share a Porsche with Stephen and Brenton Grove at the Golf 12 Hours in early December. In the co-driver's seat, as always, is Stefan Bartholomeus. Steph, how'd you go at the Supercars Gala last night? Were you well behaved? Hello, Will. I can't believe you think you need to ask me that question. I certainly <laughs> wouldn't be doing anything to put my podcast co-drive at risk. That's the spirit. I did note, though, with some of the photos that came out of last night, not of your good self, but of the um, Tickford Quartet, shall we say, um, Declan Fraser and Thomas Randall, I don't remember them being bleached blonde. Was, was that some? Was that was that something new for the evening, or is there a backstory to this? Or yeah, so those that- guys were blonde, and uh, James Courtney and Cam Waters uh, had shaved heads. So uh, we're all meant to be looking out for a hangover themed uh, short film from the Tickford guys that will come out pretty soon. They were certainly they filmed it during the day, and they were pretty excited to tell everyone about it uh, at the gala. <laughs> Flashback to um, 12 months ago when they had a similarly exciting video that they filmed. And, um, well, at least we know one driver, at least one driver is not going to be there next year. So there's no surprises off the back of the video. Anyway, first up, Castrol High Spec Stars of the Week. For me, it's really hard to go past Erebus Motorsport. I mean, they were fast and consistent throughout the year, made the least mistakes. I mean, that's a great equation if you want to win a championship. But more than that, 
They remained strong when the pressure began to ramp up as the end got near. I mean, losing both Sandown and Bathurst to Triple Eight must have hurt a fair bit. And it would have been easy for heads to go down and for Triple Eight to get the upper hand as they so often have. But uh, instead, they just kept doing their thing. And so from Brody in the driver's seat to George Commons and the engineering staff to Barry Ryan, all the mechanics and support and management staff, very well-deserved triumph. And I uh, also love the cleverness of using a Coke bottle to represent the eye in champions on those black and gold celebratory shirts. So uh, that's why they're getting my high-spec star of the week. Steph, who's yours going to? Certainly, uh, with those shirts, it was an unusual scene to see uh, Barry Ryan and those guys wearing champions shirts on Saturday evening while fixing a very bent Will Brown Camaro. <laughs> it was an unusual sort of celebration for them. But uh, for my star of the week, I'm actually going with the Super 2 champs from the weekend, Eggleston Motorsport. But their star of the week isn't really for Kai Allen's 2023 series victory. It's more about their role in Brody Costetti's story. They gave him a Super 2 ride in 2020 when he was at a real career crossroads. He had to work on the car, but he didn't have to bring a dollar to it, which is very rare in Super 2. And it was great to hear Brody talk about that in the aftermath of his championship win, as well as crediting the likes of Paul Morris and also his manager, Nathan Kayser, who have, those two guys have played big parts in his career as well. You mentioned Paul Morris, and you wrote a story for v8sleep.com.au over the weekend of an interesting sort of um, follow-on to the relationship between Brody and the Egglestons and how it actually enabled them to save a championship-winning car. Yeah, well, that was a story that um, I'm glad that Ben was was happy to tell. They, as you know, they uh, they've got an amazing collection of significant V8 supercars um, at their place, and they always wanted to get the wreckage of that big Kev BS that was destroyed in the fireball at Oran Park in 2000 because originally that car had been Craig Lowndes' 1998 championship winner, and Paul never wanted to sell it. He had a real sort of connection to it, but. He did end up relenting because he was so grateful that Ben and Rachel had given Brody that chance in Super 2. So, yeah, the fact that car's under restoration at the moment, it, it means they have all three of Craig Lowndes' title-winning cars. And it is an unusual sort of monument to their uh, their role in Brody's career, really. Well, we have a new driver's champion in Brody Kostecki, as discussed. He got the job done at the Valo Adelaide 500. He is the 26th driver to win an Australian Touring Car Championship slash Supercars Championship title. He looked confident and assured all throughout the weekend. I mean, he didn't really put a foot wrong, didn't look shaky at any point. And yes, he carried a sizable points advantage into the weekend, but he did what he had to do on Saturday. He qualified up the front and away from trouble. And once Shane Van Gisbergen was taken out of the equation on the opening lap, he drove a sensible race to make sure he finished and put the title battle to bed. And then with the shackles off, he went and laid down that stunning shootout lap to take pole on Sunday. Steph, you can't really say he's anything other than a deserving champion. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, he's been the class of the field really all season and he was on it right from the first test, the first time they rolled those cars out at Winter. And I think Brody. He's so technically switched on and the playing field was leveled with Gen 3 in in terms of the mechanical package. So this was his chance and it was just tailor-made for him this season. So he was always going to shine, but I think to go from not having won a race before in the championship to putting together a whole season the way he did, it's just been hugely impressive. And we've talked about it before, he's just had 
that great mix of raw speed and and maturity the way he's handled the challenges on track during races but but off track as well and last night at the gala he did allude to some challenges mid-year for the team which obviously included the news that Will Brown was moving to triple eight and you know through all that Brody just put his head down and he just found another gear really yeah, it's easy to forget that all that stuff happened mid-year and that Brody responded by going out and just slamming everyone at the bend and winning all three races. And in a way, that sort of that that sort of righted the ship. That sort of resurrected his title bid because, again, Triple Eight, you can never count out and it's easy for them to have stuck back in and gotten closer and then put more pressure on. But, yeah. He didn't fold at any point. And, of course, it was a double title win for Erebus, which also stitched up the Dunlop Teams Championship with a margin of 176 points over Triple Eight. I mean, what they've done this year, there were a lot of preseason predictions that they could be one of the big winners amid the reset brought about by Gen 3. And um, pretty sure pretty sure there was a podcast earlier this year somewhere where, where someone, one of the hosts, might have said that Brody was probably an outside chance of being the guy to knock off Shane Van Gisbergen. I don't know. I don't know. You might want to go back through the um, Castrol Motorsport News podcast history and, and just check that one out. Um, but, yeah, Erebus made off with both big trophies and they did it their way with their own home-built or self-built chassis. Yeah, it's an interesting point that they did go their own way there with the chassis that Jimmy White fabricated rather than getting a complete build in from Pace Innovations or Triple Eight. And it's all a spec car, but the jigging that is used to put it all together was free. So they put a lot of time into that, the jig tables and the way it's held when you actually weld it up. And who really knows how much that helped them and how much was down to the way they actually just ran the cars. I mean, we saw at the start of the year, some teams are really stuck in their old setup windows. You know, they were treating them like Gen 2 cars. But Erebus and and their young drivers, they were a bit more free-thinking and they adapted really quickly to what these cars needed to go fast. So, yeah, they, they did an amazing job with all of that. It's, it's probably just a shame for, for Erebus now that they've got to build perhaps two new cars over the off-season after what happened in Adelaide. Yeah, uh, given the hit that Will Brown's car had on the Saturday, not not just the hit with the wall, but then the subsequent hit from Shane Van Gisbergen, are you surprised that the damage is that extensive that they're considering that car to be a complete write-off? Yeah, it uh, it certainly was not what I expected. The, the question that I asked Barry Ryan was about, um, you know, whether they're going to want to put the 99 car, the championship winner, straight into a museum and, yeah, he said, well, we were hoping to, to take it out of commission, but um, we're not sure now because we've got to build another car for, for the nine side. So, um, yeah, obviously they, they don't want to run a car like it was safe enough. They could repair it. So there was no safety concern about Will racing it on the Sunday, but everything has to be perfect for them to go into a new season with that as their race car. So, yeah, they're going to. They they do have a chassis that's that's built up not into a complete car, but it's a complete chassis in their workshop. So, um, yeah, if they can get another kit from Pace to, to put together over Christmas, then uh, maybe they'll end up with two new cars next year. Now, it was great to see one of the guests in the Erebus Entourage this weekend was NASCAR legend Richard Childress. He was out here for the Adelaide 500, and it was great to see him out here in particular because it's Thanksgiving weekend over in the States. So, 
I don't think he'd be doing that if he wasn't serious about his involvement with both Brody and Erebus, because it's not like he was out here for a holiday or touring the Barossa or anything like that. He was literally here for business. He was here for the race meeting. And Stephanie made a lot of positive noises about trying to put together a bigger NASCAR program for Brody for next year. Well, yeah, he was here for the race, but he was certainly pretty relaxed. I mean, he was cruising around and happy to talk to anyone, which which was great. I mean, he's an absolute legend, obviously, of NASCAR, but he also just seems like a bloke who likes car racing, he likes drinking beers and, and going hunting, and I guess he could at least do two of those three things at, at the track on the weekend. So his whole <laughs> presence there at Erebus was fascinating for the reason you point out. I mean, it, it traded all this buzz and potentially distraction about Brody and NASCAR and what the future holds there. Obviously, Brody did drive an RCR car in the cup race at Indianapolis in August, and they're working on more races next year, including an oval. And when you look at all of it, I mean, Brody has one more year on his current Erebus deal. He's now won a supercars title. He grew up racing in America. Like all the signs point to that being his path, but we're just going to have to wait and see how it unfolds. Obviously, to run a cup program, like it's a big deal, like it needs. 15 20 million dollars worth of sponsorship wrapped around it so that's that's hard to do around a driver that's that's pretty unknown in the u.s at this point it would be fascinating to see how he would go on an oval though i'd, I'd be really excited about that prospect as he said like he grew up racing on ta- on paved ovals against guys that are in the cup series now like um bubba wallace off the top of my head is one of the guys that he raced against so it would be fascinating to see how how those skills have stood up over all this time. But the other neat story, which you broke on V8 Sleuth on Monday, is that Childress and Erebus are trying to get NASCAR star Kyle Busch into a wildcard entry for next year's Adelaide 500. Uh, obviously, there's, there's a few hurdles ahead, not least of which is that Supercars rules currently don't allow wildcard entries at the Adelaide 500. But what was your read on all that? I mean, is it just talk or do you think they're genuinely serious about getting Kyle out here to have a run? Well, I mean, yeah, as a headline, it does sound almost too cool to be real. And, and we'll see. It, it may not happen, but Richard Childress certainly said to me on the weekend that he thinks it will happen at some point that Kyle can come and race down here. And Andrew Dickerson, who he worked for Terry Wyhoon many years ago and is now at RCR and really the linchpin to the whole relationship there with Erebus, he was there on the weekend as well. And he laid it out pretty well in that, in that story that I wrote that the idea around Kyle Busch doing an Adelaide wildcard, like it's not for publicity or to try to win a supercars race. It's just another part of their effort to try and improve their NASCAR road course program. And that's where the relationship with Erebus and Brody has been helping them. You know, Brody's back over there this week running with them at the Circuit of the Americas, basically coaching Kyle and his teammate, Austin Dillon. And these road courses, they're just such an important part of NASCAR now. Like there's more of them than ever. And if you win one of those, you're in the chase. Like it carries the same weight as winning an oval race. So Kyle is a good road racer, but when they first put him in that Commodore that they have over there um, in America, that that supercar, the VF Commodore, um, you know, Brody was there and tested as well. And when there's that kid from Australia going a couple of seconds quicker than Kyle Busch in the same car, I mean, that, that gets Kyle's attention, right? So if he came and ran Adelaide, like would he be competitive like? Who knows? But would he learn more about road racing? I think I think he might, and and so that's why they're looking at it. 
it'd be a very, very big back baptism of fire for one of those Cup Series guys, any of them really, to um be turn be turning up at Adelaide against the supercars field that have had a full season of running. But at least turn eight probably wouldn't seem that scary, although maybe it would be given that he's on the wrong side of the car. I don't know. Anyway, we can't go much further into this app without talking about who actually won the races in Adelaide. Uh, Ford swept a second consecutive supercars weekend. Cam Waters getting the win on the Saturday in that stunning Ken Block tribute liveried uh, Monster Energy Mustang for the Tickford. And then how about that drive from Matt Payne on the Sunday? I mean, he beat Brody off the line and basically didn't look back. I mean, that was I was about as commanding a drive as you'll get. And he's only at the end of his second full season in a supercar, don't forget. I mean, he made a he made what a couple of wildcard starts in Super Two at the end of twenty twenty one. He did last year's six Super Two rounds plus co driving at Bathurst with Lee Holdsworth. So twelve rounds of his main game rookie season represents the bulk of his supercars history. And he turns in that performance. I mean, Steppert really puts a full stop on why Grove have put so much faith back in him right back back when he first got into a supercar in 2021. For sure. And I think one of the, the best things about it is the win didn't come completely out of the blue. Like he's been building towards it in these last few events as Grove Racing has picked up its game. So he's he's been super fast. We've seen that in qualifying repeatedly but he's not quite been able to put it together in a race like he hadn't got a podium before Sunday and all of a sudden he was a winner Uh, there's been a little bit question mark on some of his race craft and to be fair there probably still is a little bit I mean the way he won that Sunday race it was so convincing like he he got uh, the jump off the line and then he just had the had the pace to to blaze away it was a 78 lap time trial for him he wasn't going door to door with anyone but yeah full credit to him for having the, the speed and the maturity then to manage that as well. It's it's exciting, obviously, for him, but for the sport as well to have another young star really emerge. And he's in a good spot as well. I mean, if you had to get your crystal ball out and look towards 2024 and presuming all this wind tunnel testing and transient dyno testing will deliver an even balance between the Mustangs and the Camaros, who do you think will be the best performed Ford team next year? Because on current form, Grove Racing's looking pretty good. The Groves are looking good. I mean, they've invested heavily in people and infrastructure and they're getting the reward out of it right now. They're going to lose some experience with David Reynolds, of course, going to Team 18, but if they can keep on this path, both Matt Payne and Richie Stanaway have huge potential there. So I think when you look at the whole forward side, obviously the aero change before the Gold Coast completely turned it around and they've won the last four races, but it's only Groves and Tickford that have really made the most of it. It's either suited the way they run their cars or they've adapted to it better than what, say, Walkinshaw and DJR have. Chaz Mostert still ended up as the top four driver in the championship, but he was 25 seconds behind the winner at the end of both races in Adelaide. So who knows exactly how it sort of shakes out next year if there's more aero changes that come out of this uh, wind tunnel testing Cam and Chaz, I'd say, are still probably the most complete drivers on the Ford side. But again, you, you look at Chaz and he goes into next year without Adam DeBore, and that'll be a huge adjustment for him. Mm. Uh, one other thing too. Did you hear much use of the word parody when you were out and about over the weekend? Because, I mean, there was a lot of blue at the top of the tiny, timing totem when encountered in Adelaide. Uh, and I'm just curious as to what the vibe was on the ground about that. Oh, it was certainly refreshing to not have that dominate discussions for most of the weekend. Obviously, by the end of it, 
the parry trigger supposedly went off in the other direction. Shouldn't be a surprise that maybe if you get three cracks at an aero package, you might do a better job than a, a team that had one. But, you know, there was no point. The Chev guys blueing about it because it's all going to the wind tunnel anyway. And the brawl will sort of start once again when, when they've got some of those numbers and they're, they're sifting through that data. Now, as I said at the top of the show, there's also been a bit of a development among the Blue Oval Brigade with Dick Johnson Racing taking over the manufacturer's engine program for 2024. Under Gen 3 rules, all of the manufacturer's engines have to come from a sole supplier. In GM's case, that's KRE race engines. And Ford's, that has been Herod Performance Engines, which was formed when Rob Herod took over the old Mostec race engines concern in early 2022. Steph, Clearly, it hasn't been the happiest year for the Blue Oval, and fighting for engine parity has been one of the battlegrounds they haven't had heaps of success on. What do you make of this move, though? Well, this went back to what we were talking about after the Gold Coast, that there was a lot of friction building among the four teams about the engine program and the way some of it has been done this year, and DJR have ended up just buying it out. They've taken control of it. I believe Walkinshaw's looked at buying it too. They obviously had an engine shop that could have taken it on, but there's not a lot of revenue in it when you look at the model. And for DJR, it's no doubt important to control it as being part of that homologation team for Ford as well. So I think when you take a step backwards from it a little bit and look at it overall, the Chev side with KRE, they were better set up to adapt to this Gen 3 model where one supplier does engines for everyone of that manufacturer. Like they've operated for a lot of years with many customers in supercars and also in Speedway. You know, the customer relations side of that business and the way Ken McNamara looks after it is very good. Whereas the shop that Herod took over for a long time, they'd only really done DJR and, you know, they added the Blanchard thing late in Gen 2, but it was a big shift for them to be supplying a lot of teams and teams like Walkinshaw and Tickford, who in the past they traditionally had done their own motors and had their own preferred way of doing things so there was always going to be I think more pain on the blue oval side there was some talk that maybe KRE could do motors for for all teams but I don't think Ken really has the capacity or the desire to to add that to his workload that's fair enough and I imagine that will also add to his headache load of um given how engine parity conversations have gone on this year so far uh well We've talked about Brody Kostecki and Erebus and their twin titles, but of course the flip side of that is that Shane Van Gisbergen and Triple Eight came up short in their championship bids, and didn't they just have a dreadful weekend? I mean, Van Gisbergen's title hopes ended on lap one of the Saturday race when he suddenly found the back of Will Brown's Camaro appear right in the spot he was committed to being in, and that impact put him out of the race and out of the championship and left Triple Eight a lot of work to get the car out for Sunday. But his last supercars race for the immediate future ended early as well with a mystery handling issue that really had the team a bit bamboozled, Steph. Yes, it was all a bit mysterious and obviously it had some people saying that Shane had just had enough and and parked it and that maybe there was nothing wrong with the car. But I mean, I did speak to Shane about it afterwards and he said that down the straights it was driving crooked in, in one direction and then on the brakes it would pull the other way. So... I asked Mark Dutton about it too, and he seemed to think there was something wrong in there somewhere, so I'm sure they'll look at it back at the shop this week, and whether we ever hear the outcome of it or not, I'm not sure, but yeah, it was weird. I mean, Shane wasn't comfortable all weekend, again, talking about steering rack and everything like that, but 
he said this this was different to that. Initially, it felt like a loose wheel and something just wasn't right. They obviously rattled more wheels on and off. They changed shocks as well, and it uh, yeah, just something was off. Yeah, I thought the um, the suggestions of the amount of pickup on the tyres was a bit of a misnomer because like he'd cruised offline all the way back to the pits after he first noticed the issue, so all that was going to be on the tyre. But uh, I guess time will tell whether Triple Eight do find an issue. I said. I said last week that I hoped we'd get the shame that was aggressive and racy and gives 110%. And I guess really he didn't get much of a chance to show that. Although, um, well, I guess Thomas Randall might disagree. But it is a tragedy that Shane's last weekend in the supercar for the foreseeable future played out that way. And I don't know about you, Steph, but it really has the feel that we won't see him in a car at the Enduros next year. And that really was our last time seeing SVG in a supercar for quite a while. Yeah, I don't think there's much chance that he'll uh, even be be free to be doing Enduros next year. He's going to have a lot of racing to do over in the States. And yeah, as, as you say, it was just, it was a shame for the fans that his supercars farewell played out like it did. I think more so than for him, I think he was just pleased that it was over. I mean, he's pretty excited about getting on with the next chapter now. And it's just been such a, such a weird year in total. I mean, Clearly, he fell out of love with supercars early in the year, and after that NASCAR race in Chicago, he he found an exciting new challenge. But he just had to stick around here for the rest of the year. So it's a shame that it's ended like it has. By the sounds of it, this year has been tough internally at Triple Eight at times, and you know the fans are wondering why he's not getting interviewed on TV as well. Like some of that stuff is is a bit unexplained. But all I can sort of say. Really, from from my end, that for me as a journalist, like he's been great to deal with one on one, and you know, in Adelaide there on the Sunday night, he was helping the team push the cars into the truck. Like he's not quite the villain that some people would would suggest he is, but it's it's a credit to his talent as well that he dragged a Bathurst win out of this year and kept the title fight alive until the last round. I mean, for for all the drama of the season, like that, those are some pretty impressive uh, things to pull out of the fire. Absolutely. And just just looking, I was looking at the numbers of uh, today. So Shane arrived in supercars when he was 17 years old back in, what was it, 2008 when Stone Brothers Racing parachuted him in at Team Kiwi Racing. And he leaves it as a 34 year old, 2007. Uh, yeah. And he leaves it now as a 34 year old. He has spent half his life in the paddock. And that is a long period of time. And especially that period of time. For the growth of a person, I mean, it's a heck of it's a heck of an age to be thrust into the spotlight and have to unexpected to just suddenly be dealing with a lot of people, whether it's fans, whether it's media, whether it's TV people. Uh, and it, if it's not something that suits your personality, I can imagine that's a really, really um, grating is not the word, but just a hard thing to have to deal with. So watching his evolution in, I guess, being becoming more comfortable with that discomfort and finding tools to be able to still build relationships with with media, with fans, and be honest about starting to be honest about what he felt about things. That was, a, from my perspective, that actually I found that quite enjoyable to see him start pushing back about against things that he didn't like or had strong opinions on. And it is a shame that he's painted as a villain for it. 
in some quarters. Yeah, and talk about uh, sort of some of the stuff behind the scenes as well with the way he's sort of um, been representing the drivers on on issues behind the scenes and uh, he sort of stepped back from that midway through the year. But, um, yeah, I think in many ways he, he did step up as a champion, but um, this year's just been what it's been and, and it shouldn't really take away from from the magical years that, that he put in before that. I mean, 12 months ago, man, it was a different sort of narrative around around Shane and, and his brilliance and how that all ended in Adelaide with that burnout. So, uh, yeah, we should, we should be remembering and celebrating that stuff too. I think we will as time goes on. History has a way of helping you remember the good bits and less of the bad bits. Uh, before we move on to chat about a couple of other bits of supercars news from the weekend, I kind of want to get your read on the Adelaide Adelaide event as a whole. I mean, last year's resurrected race was always going to have a big crowd. I mean, the numbers and then the numbers did look good again this year, up year on year by I think a few thousand people. I feel supercar the supercars themselves put on a decent show on track with the Gen 3 cars. The support guard honestly is probably the strongest across any event on the supercars calendar. And then on top of that, there's all the off-track ac- off-track activations and the concerts. Having been there throughout the lead-up and throughout the weekend, Steph, is the event starting to get back towards its glory days or is there still a bit of a ways to go? Well, the place was immaculately presented and Chad said it on Thursday, I think it was, that it felt Formula One level and it really did. It was sort of like a a park sort of level of presentation, the way it was put together. It It seemed a bit light on for crowd through much of the weekend and it's always such a hard thing to judge, I find, anyway. But no doubt the mm. weather would have hurt it a bit. I mean, the weather was really bad on, on Thursday, and then the forecast were just probably worse than what the weather actually was for the next couple of days. But, you know, thankfully it all kind of came together for Sunday in terms of sunshine and the turnout, like the stands, there was just more people there. And obviously Robbie Williams dragged a lot through the gate as well on Sunday night. So overall probably a little bit mixed, but... I think one of the takeouts is I just don't know if the event really needs to be four days. Like I think they need to have a conversation around the Thursday and whether that really adds to the program. I think that's fair. I mean, especially having when they expanded to four days initially for for a long time, there there was entirely for supports. There was no supercars on track action. I don't think until 2018 or maybe even 2019 when the Mustang debut, it it just makes it feel like an unnecessarily long event from from the couch at home anyway. If not necess- if to think nothing of what it's like to pay all the pay for an entire extra day of having the event set up and running. So I I, I agree with that. I, I'd be surprised if they weren't looking at that for the future. I'm actually genuinely surprised that it came back as a four-day event full stop given given the cost in getting the event back up and running. But obviously the organisers did their sums and wanted to remind everyone of what the event used to be and it has done a very good job of that. Yes, yeah, so um, I did win the uh, Supercars Event of the Year or whatever the official title is, uh, award uh, on Monday night. So uh, congratulations to them for that. Indeed. Now, the big news item from the start of the weekend was that Adrian Burgess, as we alluded to in last week's episode, is indeed going to jump straight from Supercar's head of motorsport role into a top job at one of the teams on the grid. Team 18 confirming that ATB will become its team principal 
on February 1 next year, just in time for the start of the 2024 season. It's a reunion between Burgess and Charlie Schwerkel, who won the title together in 2010 at DJR, and on paper, you know, should be a really good get for the squad. But Steph, the flip side of this, of course, is that every other team in the paddock is pissed off that the guy that has really intimate knowledge of all their Gen 3 builds is now heading to one of their rivals. Yeah, there seemed to be genuine shock that there was not some sort of gardening leave clause in the contract that he'd signed back in 2018. And there's probably a few elements to unpack here. And firstly, I believe that the deals with new supercars technical staff do actually include some sort of provision for not going straight into a team that uh, was put in after someone did try to move last year. But uh, obviously it wasn't in Adrian's deal from, from what we're told. Um, and the details of some of the stuff around how you can actually legally enforce a gardening leave situation is is another discussion for lawyers. I mean, it's a tricky space in terms of restriction of trade and, and all of those terms that get thrown around. So regardless of whether it's in there or not, not sure if you can actually do it. But supercars, they've certainly handled this situation with Adrian badly. I mean, the optics are terrible and it just seemed incredibly naive that they thought he could still lead the wind tunnel test amid all this. I mean, that's obviously not happening now. They've had to back out of that and Tim Edwards will take over for that. But the bigger picture again here probably is that Adrian's role, head of motorsport, a lot of it was politics. Wasn't really technical. It's not like if Campbell Little went straight to a team I think that would actually have a bigger impact. But a little bit of the reaction here, I think, is Adrian's history with a couple of these other teams, obviously. He's been up and down the paddock a few times, so there's all sorts of dynamics at play. You mentioned of Campbell a little. I was trying to think of this, whether there was a similar precedent of this sort of thing happening. And, of course, when Campbell was, I think, chief technical officer was the title back in 2009, um, when he departed supercars after the whole Splittergate affair and him not being able to essentially run the tech side of things the way he wanted and a lot of constraints, he decided to leave the organisation. And quite soon afterwards, he popped up at Ford Performance Racing and I don't remember there being that level of um, angst or outcry um, when that happened. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting point, but but we'll see how, um, how it goes for Adrian next year. In some ways, it, it really was about trying to get out of the frying pan here like he's just been under such immense pressure at uh, at supercars with what's going on with Gen 3 and Ford and all of that stuff. And, yeah, he's uh, hopped into the fire. But I'm sure it'll pass and, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see how Team 18 moves forward because obviously they've had some issues, obviously, off the back of Bathurst and uh, quite a lot of staff change. So, um, yeah, there needs to be a little bit of a rebuild go on there. And the other bit of news for 2024 is that it looks like there's going to be a real change that impacts the endurance races, with primary drivers having to start the race at both Sandown and Bathurst instead of teams being able to choose between the primary and the co-driver. Steph, I'm not a fan of this, to be honest. I mean, it takes away from one of the more entertaining parts of the race and one of the interesting storylines where you've got the odd primary driver starting in amongst a sea of co-drivers in the opening stint. Well, I tell you what, you had to walk a long way in the paddock to find anyone in favour of this. I mean, <laughs> it seems like the team principals on the commission hate it fairly universally, but it got elevated to board level 
anyway where it's pending final sign-off. So from what I can tell, this is purely a TV network-driven thing, which the top brass at Supercars, I mean, they listen to that because they sign the biggest checks, the TV networks, but from a motorsport perspective, yeah, no thanks. I mean, they shouldn't be telling teams how to run their race strategy. There were plenty of other titles decided at the Velo Adelaide 500, and as we talked about earlier in the show, it was a very good weekend for Mount Gambier in the Dunlop Series, with Kai Allen pipping Zach Best to the post to win the Super 2 Series, while fellow Mount Gambian Job Stewart took out the Super 3 title, and if you know what the correct term for someone from Mount Gambier is, please ping us on social media, as it genuinely has me a bit stumped. So, Zach Best's title hopes took a dive when he was penalised for contact with Nash Morris in race one, and at the end of the weekend, he fell just six points short of regaining that ground to beat Allen to the title. Uh, That is, I think, three Super 2 campaigns where he's finished the bridesmaid, and one Super 3 campaign where he's finished the bridesmaid. Steph, the talk was that he he was going to potentially get a Supercars seat next year. What's the latest on that? Is that still going to go ahead or is this a fifth bridesmaid situation that we're looking at here? I'm impressed you got through that whole segment without using the term second best because it was <laughs> hard to watch, to be honest, um, to see him lose it again. And yeah, it was a surprise. You would have hoped that with his experience, he may have picked his battles a little bit better than he did, but obviously he can't go and change it now. So I hope it doesn't impact his chances of getting that SCT, Brad Jones Racing, main game drive. He's been the favourite there for months, as we've discussed, but it's not locked in. And there's a few other drivers now throwing their hats and their budgets into the ring there. And Declan Fraser is in an interesting spot. He's another name that's sort of been linked to it. He supposedly has a two-year deal at Tickford and they don't actually have a car for him, as we know, because they're going back to two cars. So... We'll see if that situation results in him being able to bring a budget there. But, um, yeah, certainly now this is the only seat um, that's unknown because, of course, Cam Waters and Thomas Randall are going to be in the two Chickford cars that are unannounced. So, um, yeah, it's it's not quite a lock at this stage. Hopefully it does work out for Zach Best because we know he's we know he is a class driver. I mean, he's a pole sitter in the main game with that pole position he got as a wild card at Tail and Bend a couple of years ago now. So hopefully we do see him pop up on the grid next year. Uh, in Painter Dixon Porsche Carrera Cup Australia, Callum Hedge took the title after a heartbreaking crash for points leader Jackson Walls on the opening lap of the final race. Adrian Flack took the Pro-Am title as well, while in Batatech GT World Challenge Australia, it was Liam Tolbert that took that title. Uh, Aaron Cameron did the double, securing the gold star by winning the S5000 Australian Drivers' Championship as well as getting the Tasman Cup for winning the Adelaide weekend overall. Uh, While Stephen Johnson took his fourth Touring Car Masters title on a weekend that John Bow said ciao for now to TCM. Poor JB had a bit of a rough weekend with a mechanical issue with his usual Tirana that looked like it would force him to miss Sunday, but he did end up getting to start the final race of the weekend in a borrowed car. And afterwards, Steph caught up with JB to talk about why he's stepping away from TCM and what he's going to do next. John, bit of a bizarre way to end your TCM career, under safety car and in a borrowed car as well. Yes, uh, very anticlimactic, really. Um, I had an issue with my own car, my own uh, L34 or A9X sedan, and and 
Jim Polisina, who's got the hatchback, very kindly offered me to drive his car in the last race because it's my last TCM race. So it was a, a wonderful gesture and, uh, you know, my social media shows that people appreciate it a lot. But, you know, we ended up doing two warm-up laps, which is normally only one because someone was towed off the track. And then we did two racing laps and then an accident at turn eight. So really, you know, <laughs> what <laughs> was, it's a lot of effort for a lot of, for not much racing. So that's life. You know, I've, I've been really touched by people this weekend that have come out and said they've followed me for 40 years, you know, like it's pretty, pretty amazing. So I'm really grateful for it. And I'm not actually going to retire from racing. I'm just going to not try and chase championships and all that. But I want to do some racing still, and I will do some racing still. But uh, chasing a championship in TCM is pretty serious stuff, and I've got a few things that other things I want to do. So why is this the end of the full-time TCM chapter? Why call it now? Uh, it's, it's more difficult for me to fund it because since COVID, it's, uh, that's the real honest truth about it. Uh, since COVID it's, and the economy, which most people would know is not that wonderful, it's, it's harder to raise sponsorship. I've, I've had some wonderful sponsors and still got some, to be honest, but it's... Uh, yeah, it's, that's the reason, you know, I guess well, for, for 25 or 30 years I, I had, a, a you know, a, like a drive that all I had to do is turn up and race the car, you know. I, I didn't realise how lucky I was. And this Since I raced TCM, I've had to raise the money to do it and uh, not being independently wealthy, you know, it's, a, it's quite a task. So that's the main reason. And, you know, I've got an opportunity to race GT4 next year with with a guy called Jacob Lawrence, who's a really, he's a rookie essentially, but a good, really good driver and good blokes. And so, yeah, it's just a, an evolution of a very long racing life. You touched on it a little bit before, but what has TCM meant to you and your life? Because it's been post your professional career, but it's been a huge part of your, your life in the end. Yes, it was. Uh, to be honest, and I've made no secret of this, I, when I stopped racing supercars, I became progressively more depressed and anyone that's been depressed knows what it's like and it became almost life-threatening and uh, you know I was encouraged into TCM by several good friends supportive friends and by Tony Hunter who was the the boss of TCM for a long time he you know he was one of the founders and you know it really gave me something to enjoy and the cars are terrific to, to race and the people are great. You know, we've had some good times and bad times, of course, but it's been really a great life. You know, I love it. Uh, and I'd, I'd love to do the odd one-off race next year, which I may or may not do, you know. I mean, I'm not, I don't race TCM cars to win races. I race TCM cars to satisfy my addiction for racing more than anything else. And I've won some races, a lot of races really, which, which is great. Obviously winning's better than not winning, but it's not the reason I do it. It's not a, you know, not the end of the world if I don't win. So it's been terrific for me. And, and the cars are, are really, you know, they're challenging to drive. They've got zero aero and they've got supercar horsepower and tyres that are four inches narrower than a supercar and brakes that are 100 mil smaller. 
So they're not a, you know, they're not a toy. And the, the top end of the field are really good operators, you know. So, so I'm not, I'm sort of sad, but not sad. You know, I'm glad I've got some something else to do next year. GT4 is, I think, a good category. It's getting some legs. That there is talk of up to 25 cars, certainly 18, definitely. And they're unbelievable cars. Like they, they come from the factory and you don't do anything to them other than, you know, move the pedals closer to you or something. You know, they're just incredible. So that'll be just, I'll have to get my head around it. I've done one race meeting at the Bend with Jacob and um, we, we won one race there. So it was a one hour race. We won it together. So I said to him, you know, this is as good as it gets, mate. Might as well stop now. But it's, I'm quite excited about it in my own, you know, way. I mean, it's, I've done over 1,280 races, so the excitement is different than, than it was when I was, you know, a youngster, but I still love it and, you know, I love the people in it. So, yeah, call me an addict. One of the uh, people that you love in this category is Stevie J. Obviously, yeah. your connection to the Johnson family runs pretty deep, but uh, it's been cool to be able to race against him in this part of your career as well. Well, it's been funny. I mean, I'm I'm his greatest admirer, and I always was, even back in the day when he was a little nightmare kid. Um, he, uh, I got him into this category with my Mustang Sally, and then he proceeded to beat me. And then... Um, this particular car he's driving now is owned by Russell and Julie Hancock, who were really lovely people from uh, Newcastle, and they had it built for TCM. It's a very good car, and I helped them sort it out, set it up, make it work well, because it, it, as it first ran, it wasn't that good. And, uh, and then I recommended they get Stevie J to drive it, uh, and he's beat me ever since, so... Very disrespectful, really. <laughs> I've beaten him a few times, but majority, and, and he deserves to. He's, he's the champion and he, he's won the most races. And, you know, he's the, let's call him the class of the field at the moment. So good on him. I'm very close to the family as, as buddies. You know, I spent 12 years racing with Dick and we never had a crossword. And there's plenty of times I gave him the chance to have a crossword with me, so... Racing in TCM has also meant you've been part of some of these supercars events still, and I know you follow that all pretty closely. What have you made of Brody Kostecki and Erebus and the way that they've uh, really grabbed the bull by the horns this year and won the championship? Well, personally, I think it's terrific. With no disrespect to any of the other teams, particularly Triple Eight, who were always there. Since they came to Australia, they raised the bar in supercar racing against everybody, and their record would show that. But it's nice to see someone else come out of the blocks with this new car and, and do well. And they are good at every track, you know. They don't have hot, cold moments. They've been incredibly impressive. And I honestly have never met Brody Kostecki, but I, I'm impressed by him, you know. I mean, how could you not be impressed by him? And this year he's been outstanding. So it's fitting, I think, that he wins uh, the championship. And, you know, he's only a young guy, so the world's at his feet, isn't it, really? And... I've been reading in your publications as well that he may be able to go to America. And I mean, if, if I had any advice for young guys, I would say look further afield than Australia. You know, Australia's a great place, great country, great racing, but we've got 25 million people and America's got 350 million people. So there's opportunities for talented people that you can only dream of in Australia. So. 
I hope he does it. I mean, I don't want Supergirls to lose him, but, you know, he's got to look after his life and his career. And uh, there's great opportunities over there, more so than Europe, in my opinion. Now, the 2023 Repco Supercars Championship is done and dusted, and that means one thing for Australian motorsport means the Bathurst 12 hour, the Repco Bathurst 12 hour, isn't too far away. So each week in the lead up to the race here on the Castrol Motorsport News podcast, we're going to quickly look back at one memorable moment from the race's rich history. Look, there have been plenty of big accidents up there over the years. I mean, GT3 manufacturers must absolutely rub their hands together with glee when the race rolls around each year. But I want to flash back to an incredible save. And I'm talking about in practice for the 2018 race, Will Davison was piloting one of the Team WRT Audi R8s through McPhilmy Park when it stepped out on him and he did two perfect, perfect 360-degree spins. Didn't touch anything other than maybe some cloth, dropped it into first gear and carried back onto the pits. It was spectacular and the team had no idea because it was during practice and there were no TV cameras. So it wasn't until they pulled out the data recorder footage from the in-car that they went, oh, wow. So he was he was absolutely delighted that we came up and asked him about it anyway. Now, if you want to be there trackside for next year's Repco Bathurst 12-hour to potentially catch more instances of spectacular things like that, head to their website, bathurst12hour.com.au. That's where you can buy your tickets for the race weekend on February 16 to 18. And you can also book a campsite that you might want to get in quick because they are going quite fast. Let's take a look at the international scene and the two biggest championships on two and four wheels are done for the year. Max Verstappen ended the Formula One season on a very appropriate note by dominating the season-ending Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. And along the way, he notched up his 1,000th lap led across the 2023 season, the first time that milestone has been reached by any driver in a single year. Charles Leclerc and George Russell rounded out the podium from a salty Sergio Perez, who had been second across the line but was dumped to fourth place by a five-second time penalty for making contact with Lando Norris late in the race. Perez was pretty mad about it. Here's what he had to say on the team radio afterwards. P2 on the road. P4, apparently after penalties. I mean, the serious are you, but I cannot believe. I mean, they have been very bad this year, but... Uh, this is a joke. That was really a joke. <laughs> I just cannot believe that they gave a penalty for that. The audio from F1 there. Sergio did avoid penalty for that, though, after apologising to the stewards. Uh, Oscar Piastri ended up sixth for McLaren, having qualified an outstanding third, while Daniel Ricciardo ended the race less than a second outside a points-paying finish in 11th place. The F1 cars will be on track for the last time this year in Abu Dhabi tonight, though, with the traditional post-season test. And most teams will have a test reserve or young driver in at least one of their cars, and that includes Alpine, who will have young Jack Doohan alongside regular driver Esteban Ocon. Meanwhile, MotoGP crowned its 2023 champion at Valencia, Peko Bagnaia claiming his second consecutive title for the factory Ducati squad. His season-long deal with Jorge Martin coming to an end when the Primac Ducati rider crashed out of the Grand Prix, taking out Marc Marquez in his final ride as a factory Honda rider. Martin had won the sprint race to close his points deficit to 14, but the crash meant Bagnaia had the title sealed regardless of where he finished the finale, but he nonetheless fought all the way to secure the last race win of the season, fending off a resurgent Fabio Di Giantonio, while Phillip Island winner Yoan Zarco finished third. 
and Jack Miller ended his first year with KTM on the sour note, crashing out of the lead with nine laps to go. But the action didn't end with the race. MotoGP also sticks around in Valencia for its postseason test, which traditionally marks the artificial start of the 24 season with new rider and team combos getting their first laps. One of those is going to be Luca Marini and Repsol Honda, Valentino Rossi's half-brother leaving the VR46 squad to take the seat left vacant by Mark Marquez's departure, while Marini's ride at VR46 is going to get taken by Gian Antonio, who looked for a while like he was going to end up without a chair when the music stopped as his seat at Crescini Ducati is being taken by Marquez. But perhaps the big news is that MotoGP has kicked out one of its teams. The RNF Aprilia squad that fielded Miguel Oliveira and Ralph Fernandez this year has had its 2024 entry rejected by series owners Dorna for what it called repeated infractions and breaches of MotoGP's participation agreements, which are kind of like the REC or the TRC in supercars, uh, which Dorna says affected the public image of MotoGP, and that's a reference to reports of significant financial issues surrounding the team. Uh, Dorna is now looking for a team to take over the two Aprilias that it was supposed to field in 2024, and the hot rumour is, believe it or not, NASCAR squad Trackhouse Racing would take them over, which, you know, if true... Hopefully means we get to see Shane Van Gisbergen on a MotoGP bike at some point soon. Right, motorsport news, mailbag time. And this week, we've got a question from Victor Doe, who asks, what happened to the GRM chassis that was reported to have been purchased by Tickford for Super 2? Uh, Steph, I believe that's going to get a run next year. Yeah, it will make a race return next year, actually, with an ex-GRM driver aboard it as well. Tickford have, of course, converted this car to a Mustang that's part of the the car of the future slash Gen 2 platform that you can change the body. It's a bit of work, but um, it can be done. So it's one of these Frankenstein cars that have gone from from one brand to another and they're going to field it for Lockie Dalton, who of course spent this year in Trans Am with GRM and also raced Super 2 with Brad Jones. So they're uh, looking like they're going to run three Super 2 cars, Tickford, with Ryland Gray, who debuted in Super 3 with them in Adelaide. He'll step into the now ex-Ellie Morrow car, and I expect Brad Vaughan's car will be repaired for him to run again after his big crash there at Turn 8 in Adelaide. And before we go, one of our favourite segments every week, what's caught your eye on My 105? This week I've gone with something that has big power, big history, and a price tag to match. It's a McLaren M8F Can-Am car. Now, I, I love can-am like obviously i'm a bit too young to have been around for it but any category where there's a loose enough rule book that you can basically do whatever you want it's hard not to love that uh and the mclarens they were the dominant car through its glory days with the whole bruce and denny show bruce mclaren denny holm dominating the series through the late 60s and into the early 70s uh this particular car wasn't one of the factory cars driven by them this one was actually raced by a privateer john cannon i think ended up coming out to Australia to race Formula 5000s in the 70s. Uh, he raced this car during the 1973 season and his son, its I think it stayed in the family and his son commissioned it to be fully restored a few years ago prior to its sale to its current owner and it is in immaculate condition. Uh, complete with, and this isn't a typo, an 8.8 litre V8 Chevy engine, complete with magnesium McLaren valve covers, putting out a casual 868 horsepower at 6,500 RPM. Steph, I could definitely see myself having some fun at Phillip Island and Sandown Historics in that, even if it'll cost me half a million dollars for the privilege. 
What about you this week? What are you quietly sneaking into the garage? I wondered when you were going to get to the price there because I thought it might take the air out of your balloon a little bit. I, I forgot last week. For I totally forgot to name the price last week. So I had to make up for it this time. I've certainly gone for something a little bit more humble and I've found a Mitsubishi Lancer Evo 5. It's actually the car that Mark King drove to the 2000 GTP title and that was a great little series back in the day, I'm sure. You remember, and it's just really cool to see one of those cars still out and out and about. So uh, I can have it for, I think, 10% of the price tag of, of your rig. So that's a bit of me. But which one of us will have more fun on the track with it? I think it's probably a draw, to be honest. Which, which one will still be on the track with it is probably the question. Yeah, I think there's no contest there, and I don't think it, I don't think it's me. Um and if you've got a hankering for some horsepower to call your own, you can visit my105.com for those two machines and plenty more cars, bikes, carts, trailers and transporters, parts and accessories. And on that note, that's it for this week. So for Stefan Bartholomeus, I'm Will Dale and we'll be back next Tuesday with a fresh episode of Castrol Motorsport News. Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here. And yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication and so much more for all sorts of makes, models and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 W Racing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au.